Elevate your productivity and relaxation with salgoodbooks.com. For $10 a month, access an exclusive selection of ad-free audiobooks. Perfect for listening during a break or commute. Enhance your listening experience at salgoodbooks.com. Rediscover the art of relaxation at soulgoodsounds.com. For just $10 a month, indulge in our extensive collection of ad-free coming sounds. Perfect for those cherishing peaceful moments. Begin your auditory escape today at soulgoodsounds.com. God gathers his instruments. It was almost mid-afternoon before Austin Price reached the hospital. He hurried along the corridor, but checked his pace as he neared his wife's room, for the half-open door allowed him to hear a merry chuckle. Sister Mary Laurentia was visiting Mrs. Price, her sister. A taunt was on his lips as greeting, but died there when he pushed the door farther open and discovered Sister Robert Ann standing at the foot of the bed. "'Oh, come in, Mr. Price,' she called. "'We were just telling Bertie she must hurry home and take care of you.' "'Discharged?' queried the chief as he bent to kiss his wife. "'Yes, but I don't think I'll go home until tomorrow.' "'She likes it here,' put in Sister Mary Laurentia from the other side of the bed. It's like old times, when we fight every day, isn't it, sis? Mrs. Price smiled at her sister and asked her husband, How's little Jackie? Austin Price's eyes opened wider as he whistled. Glad you asked, honey. I promised the kid I'd take him for a ride this very afternoon. He and his mother must be waiting downstairs right now. He turned to Sister Robert Ann. That's the youngster who came all the way from Seattle to see your Dr. Rankin. You know, he and his mother are staying at our house. But how is he? broke in Mrs. Price insistently. Don't know, hon. Dr. Rankin had not finished all his tests the last time I saw him. Well, a knock on the door interrupted Mrs. Price, and Sister Mary Vignina, superior of the hospital, entered. What have we here? A family meeting? How are you, Mr. Price? I'm very glad to see you. And you, Mrs. Price? They tell me you're going to leave us. Not until tomorrow, sister. Oh, that's fine. Get some good rest before going back to slave for this big husband of yours. It's a man's world, isn't it, chief? Not this little corner of it, laughed Price, as he swept the four faces with a glance. Did you come downstairs or up, sister? Up. Did you happen to see Jackie Regan and his mother? Dr. Rankin's patient? Yes, he's sitting in the lobby. Then I ought to be on my way. Wait, cut in Mrs. Price. Sister Mary Bignina, wouldn't it be grand to have sisters Robert Ann and Mary Laurentia go out for a nice drive with the chief and the little fellow? I've been after them every day to get out for fresh air, but they pay as little attention to me, as does the chief, when he's on a hot case. I'm obeyed no better, Mrs. Price, said the superioress, as her hands played with her beads. I tell every sister in the hospital to get as much fresh air as possible, but— The air in the hospital is much more safe. Think of all the disinfectant, the antiseptics, the other sterility. Cut in Sister Mary Laurentia. Go on with you, replied the superioress. You and Sister Robert Ann chaperone the chief as he takes the little boy and his mother for a ride. I want to talk to Mrs. Price alone. Go on now. She turned to the chief. You have Mrs. Price the rest of your life. I'll have her only these few hours. 
Not much of a visit, hon, said Price to his wife as he swept his hat from the bed. But I'll be back in no time. How soon will you be ready, sisters? Oh, they'll be at the door before you, replied Sister Benigna. I know that pair. And she waved the two nuns out of the room. Ten minutes later, as the chief swung his car out the main drive, Jackie, sitting beside him on the front seat, pointed to the car radio. Can we get police calls on this, Mr. Price? How do you send those calls out anyhow? Will you show me before I go back to Seattle? No, Jackie, you won't get any police calls on that radio. This is Mrs. Price's car, and she hears enough police reports and police calls without any special equipment. But if you really want to see how we send them, I'll take you down to the station after we stop at the jail. Sister Robert Ann lifted an inquiring eyebrow to her companion in the back seat. That means the county jail. Her voice was filled with real consternation. I hope you're right. I've always wanted to see that place. Was the only comfort she got from the older nun. But ten minutes later, Sister Mary Laurentia experienced a qualm herself when she saw the chief actually drawing up before the Fayette County Jail. But quickly she decided to be as big a child as Jackie and see what she could see in this curious place. She felt a pronounced tremor in Sister Robert's arm as she helped her from the car. And what was this tingling in her own veins? Sisters of Charity had been in jails before, she told herself. But then, just as quickly told herself, they had not been Sisters of Charity of Nazareth, nor had the jails been the Fayette County Jail. Then she saw the challenging light in her brother-in-law's eye. If he thought he was frightening nuns, she'd show him. Now let us see all of it, Chief, she demanded as he locked his car. From bottom to top, Price laughed as he started for the steps. After the main office had been thoroughly examined, the Chief showed the sisters the storerooms and the huge kitchen. The order and cleanliness impressed the nuns. Could we see some cells and prisoners? asked Jackie, who had as much interest in steam cookers and heating tables as the sisters would have in roller skates and hockey sticks. Up we go, said the chief, and led the way to the cell blocks on the second floor. Out of the corner of his eyes he studied the nuns. Sister Robert Ann did look a little frightened, but Sister Mary Laurentia was walking along with all the calm and assurance she displayed on the floors of the hospital. Austin Price suddenly wondered if there was any way he could shock this sister-in-law of his. Before any ideas suggested itself to the chief, she shocked him with the quiet question, Is Tom Penny here? Uh-huh. Would you like to speak to him? For a split second, Austin Price thought he had found his answer, for the slightest shadow of alarm seemed to start in Sister Mary Laurentia's eyes. But she quietly replied, Love to. Tom, called the chief, and strode toward a central cell. From the far end, a tall blonde sauntered forward. As soon as his eyes saw the religious habits, they fell and his head lowered. The chief thrust his hand through the bars and shook the prisoner's hand. This is my sister-in-law, Tom, Sister Mary Laurentia, and this is her companion, Sister Robert Ann. Penny flashed a look at each nun and bowed his head in greeting. They are from St. Joseph's Hospital. I know, came the quiet reply. I have seen the sisters from St. Joseph's before. I worked there. So, 
said Sister Robert Ann, stepping nearer the bars. Well, I want you to know the sisters at St. Joseph's are praying for you, Mr. Penny. Thank you, was the somewhat embarrassed response. Do you know they are father, Tom? asked Sister Mary Laurentia. I'm afraid I've forgotten it, Sister. Well, then, just say often, My Jesus, mercy. Yes, Mr. Penny, put in Sister Robert Ann. No sin is too great for him to forgive, you know, and he loves you. Austin Price was studying the prisoner as the sisters talked. Never had he seen Tom Penny so intent on anyone's words. It was a concentration totally different from the alertness which characterized him while on his guard under questioning. Now he appeared anxious to catch the full import of the little speeches. Thank you, sisters, and I'm very grateful to you for coming, and to you, Mr. Price, for having brought them. I have a young man here, Tom, who wants to see you. This is Jackie Regan from Seattle, and this is his mother. Hello, said Jackie and held out his hand. Hello yourself, said Penny, taking the hand. A trace of a smile lighted his scarred face. Then the party moved on. Tom Penny turned back to his bunk. Squatting on the edge of it, he put his head in his hands. My Jesus, mercy, he mumbled, then frowned. I wonder how the Our Father goes anyhow. Before any answer came, Tom Penny was smiling twistedly. Cynically, he lit a cigarette, and as he snapped the match into the far corner, wondered what Bob Anderson and the rest of the boys would think of him going religious. He blew a scornful puff of smoke toward the ceiling and stretched full length on the bunk. Staring at the juncture of the bars and the ceiling, he went over the events of the past few weeks. Soon he twisted in disgust and muttered, What rotten breaks! He was thinking of the last Saturday in September. He and Anderson had no intention of shooting when they entered the club. Baxter had told them there was just one old lady there, and that it would be like taking candy from a kid to gather in ten grand. Ten grand! He hadn't got a hundred dollars out of the whole stinking mess. He sat on the edge of the bed and shook his head in anger, telling himself he should have known better. Everyone knew Baxter was a hophead. Still, his story had made sense, for a free-spending crowd frequented the Lexington Country Club, and with the Saturday night dance as an extra, it seemed plausible that there would be between five and ten thousand dollars in the place. The prisoner arose and began to pace his cell. He was trying to dispel the memory of what had actually happened inside the club that fateful night. Why had he ever taken that gun from Anderson? They had been in once utterly unarmed. The lights of a passing car had halted them. They had come out to see if the car had passed on. It was then they took the guns. But why had they done it? They had pulled the switch of the main control, cut the telephone wires, and were sure no man was around the place. Why had he ever taken that gun from Anderson? Hell, he growled and tamped a fresh cigarette. I don't suppose it'd make much difference now, anyhow, since I was with Bob when he turned loose with his gat. Over on the bunk again, he stretched out, blowing clouds of smoke ceilingward and marveling at the courage and strength of Marion Miley. He could not recall ever having seen the girl in his life, but from what the paper said, he was sure it was she who had come from her room and not only grappled him, along six feet of bone and muscle, but actually knocked him down. 
It was then that his gun went off. Henny was breathing hard as he reviewed this event, but now he drew in a long inhale, and, while letting it out, said within himself, Thank God they found one bullet in the floor. Soon he was sitting up thinking, Why can't my lawyer make a case of that? Let him grant that I was there, that I went there to rob, that I was armed with a thirty-eight. That's all true, but there's the unquestionable evidence that I committed no murder. The bullet, the only bullet from my gun, the only thirty-eight in the place, was found in the floor, not in either of the bodies. With his elbows on his knees, and his head in his hands, he wondered how Bob Anderson felt about it all. The FBI bullet experts had proved the slugs in the bodies and Mrs. Miley's bed were all from Bob's thirty-two, and still Anderson maintained his innocence, denying all connection with the crime. That guy's an iceberg, or crazy, whispered Penny somewhat fiercely, and flicked gray ash to the floor. I involved him, Baxter involved him, the guns involve him, and now the slugs, but the guy goes on denying it all. Phew, how does he expect to get away with it? Of course he's got money and mouthpieces, but even so... Flinging himself back on the bunk, he asked himself if he had really ratted on his pal. He gritted his teeth as he thought of how he had been taken. A traffic light, a lifeless signal would now most likely mean three lives. It was at Fort Worth, Texas. He had been driving all over the South for ten days, and nothing had happened. He had been to Florida, came back through Georgia and Alabama, had crossed Mississippi and Arkansas without the slightest trouble, had even telegraphed Anderson for more money, and received it within a few hours. But then, down deep in Texas, a traffic light turned against him, and that light might yet mean the electric chair. With a chuckle that was like a growl, he swung his long legs down on the floor, and sat on the edge of his bunk with his huge hands spread wide on each side of him. Again he gave that hard, harsh chuckle. That's what I get for obeying the law. But suddenly he was sitting bolt upright. His gray-blue eyes narrowed, and a glint, as cold as steel, leaped from them. Rat, he thought. Rat? Why, it was Anderson who ratted on me, reporting his car stolen after giving it to me for a getaway. If it wasn't for that, those dicks in Fort Worth would never have given me a second glance. Wait until I see that guy again. Then the three days and two nights of constant questioning at Fort Worth came back to him. The corner of his mouth lifted in a sneer as he thought of how they had badgered him, bullied him, and all but beaten him in a fruitless effort to worm a confession out of him. Had he to deal only with such dicks, he'd be a free man today, or at most a suspect auto-thief. But Chief Price had come down from Kentucky. Tom Penny rocked a bit on his bunk as he faced a real puzzle. He knew he should be hating Austin Price with all the hate of his being. And yet, far from hating him, he found himself almost liking the fellow. He had been decent. He had talked to him like a human being, had treated him like a man. For four hours they had been together that Sunday, yet never once had the chief raised his voice. Quietly, almost considerately, he had put question after question, and even more quietly noted down Tom's replies. As he rocked back and forth now, Penny could hear the calm voice of Austin Price. Tom, you're contradicting yourself. Even more clearly he could hear his own voice. 
a voice that was not near so calm, a voice that was harsh with a false bravado, and resonant with a confidence that was assumed. It was a resonance that spoke to the trained ear of guilt. Puff! Do you think I'm going to confess to a double murder? With a start, Tom Penny sat up. That's where I made my mistake, he told himself, if I kept on answering instead of asking. But then he shrugged his shoulders and comforted himself with the thought that they would have pulled it out of him finally anyhow. No man could face the grilling Chief Price administered without tripping up somewhere. He ground the stub of the cigarette under his foot as he concluded he had not ratted, but had been trapped into an omission. But the fact that he had been captured at all was Anderson's fault. So if blame there be for the mess they were in, let that double-crosser take it, if he hadn't reported his car as stolen. Tom Penny stood up and stretched. This kind of thinking would do no good, he told himself. It was crying over spilt milk. Let the cat lap such stuff up. Late that evening, just as he was thinking of retiring, Penny heard his name called. Looking up, he found Detectives Harrigan and Gravit at the door of his cell. No more questions, he growled. I've told you both all I know. I've told you all I intend to tell you. Not so fast, Penny. This is a friendly visit this time. Friendly, Penny sneered. Officer Harrigan speaking. How kind of you. Friendly. That's the way you bulls always begin. No, no, Tom, put in Gravit. You got us wrong this time. Wrong? I've had you guys right from the time I was a kid. If you won't take our words, at least take your cigarettes. The prisoner looked at the oblong package the detective held out to him, then flashed a suspicious eye at the two men. They're yours, Tom, Detective Gravit assured him. Joe and I saw them lying on the desk as we came by, and thought we'd bring them up to you. What kind of a day did you have? Penny took the carton from Harrigan's hand, read the return address on the upper left-hand corner, smiled, and tossed the package on the bunk. Then he answered Gravit. Not bad at all. Ate well, slept well, saw the morning and evening papers, even had some visitors. I'll call at the end of a perfect day if you two won't fire questions at me all night. Joe Harrigan relit his cigar. Questions ended. Chief gave orders to leave you alone. Seems to like you, Penny. Glad you had a good day. Hope you have a nice night. See you later. Tom smiled as the two men swung down the cell block. He took the carton and reread the return address. He fished a pencil from his pocket, reached for a piece of paper, and sat down to acknowledge the gift to his cousins. Five minutes later, he sealed the envelope, placed it on the thin ledge between the bars, took another piece of paper, and wrote, Lexington, Kentucky, October twenty-second, 1941. Dear Chief, You will never know just how much I appreciated your visit this afternoon. I never knew that an officer of the law could be so human before. Isn't it strange how one learns such things too late, and the price one has to pay for them? It is not of myself, I think. My suffering is nothing compared to mothers, my brothers and sisters, and all my friends. What hurts so bad is to think what I could have been had I chosen the right road instead of the wrong. If I could only tell the world the story of my life, it would be sure to help someone. Chief, honestly I have told you all I know, and it is the truth. I told them the other night that I wanted you present. They said you were sick and wanted me to tell them. 
They were all very kind and considerate. And, Mr. Price, if there is nothing that you can do for me, I at least know you are sincere on my behalf, and I want you to know that I hold no malice against anyone on earth, and that I have the deepest respect for you in the force. I also think Mr. Maupin, Harrigan, and Gravett deserve a lot of credit in this case. They certainly stuck with it to the end, without rest. I am not throwing bouquets for sympathy. I really mean this from my heart. I just want to say something to show my appreciation of their and your kindness. For all the hard things I have said and thought in regard to officers of the law, I am sorry, very sorry. I see them differently now. If you feel, oh, I don't know how to express myself, but if you feel bad about having to crack this case, please don't. I know it is your duty. Mr. Price, I would like very much to know the names of the sisters who were with you today. God bless them. They are always the same so kind and sympathetic. I always felt a sort of security to be in their presence. Well, Chief, I won't take any more of your time. Try not to think too badly of me. And remember, I honestly am sincere in all I've said. To you and yours, best of health and good luck. Respectfully, Tom Penny. The prisoner read his letter over. For a moment he was tempted to tear it up. It sounded crawling. He did want to thank Price but somehow these lines did not ring with the gratitude he wanted them to have. He had said some pretty nasty things about cops, both at Fort Worth and here in Lexington, but now he felt differently toward them. Price was okay, so were Maupin, Harrigan, and Gravett. He owed each an apology, and he owed the chief some real thanks. But this letter sounded... Then his eyes fell on the paragraph about the nuns. Were those few sentences the real reason for this long letter? What was it they had said? They were praying for him. For what could they be praying? He had been caught. He had confessed. His days of crime were over. If he didn't get the chair, he'd surely get life. So for what could they be praying? For what? The question finally had him folding his letter and addressing it to the chief. If nothing else came from it, he might get the names of those nuns and write to them to find out what they were praying for. Surely not for my life, said Penny as he prepared for bed, and I know they wouldn't be praying for my death. But a few moments later, as he pulled the blankets up under his chin, he admitted that they might be praying just for that. He hadn't lived right. The sisters at St. Joseph Hospital might very well be praying that he die right. The thought disturbed him. Did he know anything about dying? He remembered well the impulse that seized him when the cops had recognized him at Fort Worth by means of his long facial scar. He was tempted to force them to pull their guns and kill him there at the wheel. He could not now tell himself just why he had denied that impulse. It would have saved him so much trouble, the questionings, the publicity, the long ride back and the shameful return to his home city. Then the weeks that lay ahead with the trial. Why hadn't he done it? Was it because of the others in the car at the time? Leo Gaddis and that woman they had picked up? Stupid how chivalrous he was towards all women, no matter how little worthy of chivalry they might be. As he turned on his side, he told himself that was the very reason he had not forced the cops to open fire, a skinny, hard-faced prostitute. But then his eye caught a solitary star in the heavens, and he wondered if there was not something more to it than his own false chivalry. Suddenly he realized that every letter he had written from Fayette County Jail 
had had a God bless you in it. Even this latest to Price had a God bless them in it for the nuns. Yet at Fort Worth he had laughed into the teeth of one of his questioners who had asked, Doesn't God mean anything to you? God, he had laughed. To me that is only a three-letter word. And for all practical purposes, those three letters might just as well be X, Y, Z. Then why was he writing of God to his mother, his cousins, and even to the chief? The stars slowly marched across the sky above Lexington that night, silvering even some of the bars in the Fayette County Jail. They were majestically calm and peaceful, but Tom Penny slept a light and troubled sleep beneath them, never dreaming that he who had set those stars in their courses had been gathering instruments to bring him back to the orbit traced out for man. At Fort Worth, the questioner with his question about God had been one small instrument. The curiosity of Jackie Regan about jails had been another. But it was only as Penny fell asleep that God had gathered his four main instruments, two nuns up at St. Joseph's Hospital, and down at the Price home, two men who were discussing the man they knew would be convicted as a murderer. I know he's going to die for this crime. I want you to go and see him, said Price doggedly. Okay, Chief, I'll go. You pray that I say the right thing when I do. And Father George Donnelly smiled as he saw relief in Price's eyes. The object of all this heavenly and earthly concern stirred in his sleep as he dreamed of his mother. End of chapter 2